if we want to create citizens that go and protest and, and fight for this, we have to have a balance of emotions. They can't come only upset and knowledgeable. They have to have also hope and a sense of optimism. Hey everyone, welcome to House School, a new podcast from the Digital Futures Institute, hosted by myself, Jen Lee, and my co-host, Joe Rina Ferry. Hey Joe. Hey Jen. Hey everyone. House School is a podcast about the issues that impact young people for the people who care about them and want to be able to ask better questions to connect than the age-old eye-roll-inducing House School. And in these conversations, another question we're asking is, how do we allow ourselves to care about issues that impact our young people without losing heart? And I have to say, Joe, when it comes to that second question, few issues feel as daunting to me as the climate crisis. Yeah, me too. And we should just say at the top, we know this is a really difficult topic to engage with, but our intention here is to look at what our experiences are and to find ideas about how we can keep informed, take action that feels meaningful and doable, and hold on to a sense of resilience or hope in the process. So to sit with us and to sift through our thoughts and feelings, we wanted to bring in Professor Oren Pismoni-Levy. Am I saying that right? Perfect. Okay, <laughs> great. Oren is the director of the Center for Sustainable Futures at Teachers College Columbia University. Through his work, he has a really good idea of what's at stake here. And as a parent, I imagine his heart is in the game, one could say, not just for this current time, but for the future ahead. And somehow he still isn't looking away or giving up. Oren is taking action locally and with global partners to address this issue. And I really hope he can tell us more about how he's doing it. So Oren, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, we really appreciate you being here. Um, so I'm just going to sort of state the problem as we understand it. Um, and for us, you know, we see the climate crisis, of course, as an issue that affects us all. But it's an even bigger issue for younger people. Um, we ourselves find the climate crisis incredibly overwhelming. And it's hard to imagine being a young person growing up now inundated with news of climate disaster. And yet at the same time, young people are some of the ones leading the efforts to tackle these issues. That's right. And according to the latest climate reports from both the United Nations and the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, they're letting us know that the effects of climate change are even more widespread and harmful to human life than previously were known. And honestly, it's hard for me to even get to how do I support young people on this issue because I struggle so much myself with feeling overwhelmed and really powerless. Yeah, and it feels even worse knowing that, you know, even if we were all working together to tackle this, it would be a huge, huge um, effort. But there's also powerful entities cynically focused on making money pushing us in the wrong direction. So <laughs> we're going to turn it around to you. How do you feel about this as a scholar and also as just a human and as a parent? So I think our conversation today, and you already set the, the stage for this, I think our conversation will really go up and down mood-wise uh, because on the one hand, I'm going to share with you that I'm really worried, like you guys. But I'm also optimistic. You know, I'm waking up every morning, I'm opening my Twitter immediately, 
Um, although I was told not to do that. And then immediately <laughs> I'm seeing all these devastating visualizations about the, the status of the planet and the climate. And it's get me really worried. Where as a scholar, when I'm looking at it, there are a couple of data points that really tr triggered me to take more action. One of them is the fact that in New York City, where Teachers College is located and some of my work is, we are now celebrating the 10th anniversary of Hurricane Sandy, the largest storm that really devastated city infrastructure and schools. When I'm thinking about kids that all of a sudden didn't have school 10 years ago, they didn't have a building. We're not talking about just moving online. They didn't have a place to go, a place to call school. That's, that's hard. I'm thinking about the evidence on climate anxiety among kids. And we have a couple of very striking data points that are with me all the time. One is a study by Elizabeth Marks and her colleagues in 10 countries where they find that 59% of the respondents are very or extremely worried about the topic. And over half of them are feeling sad, anxious, angry, powerless, helpless, and guilty. And then we have research from our own doctoral student, Erika Kessler, who used data on 22 countries and she find that in 15 of them, more than 50% of 14-year-old students are saying that climate change is a serious threat to the planet. But I don't want to stop there because I'm also very inspired. As you two mentioned, we have a recent wave of youth activism that we haven't seen in a long time. Um, it's a huge wake-up call for policymakers, for adults to really think about how come the kids are telling us that we are that we are missing the the we are missing we are missing the most important moment of our history as a civilization? So I'm very inspired by that. If I'm thinking about the wonderful work that the New York City Department of Education Office of Sustainability is doing at the city level, right? It's amazing. They are working with youth, they are working with parents, they are working with teachers, they are working with sustainability coordinators, principal, leadership teams in really and in an effort to really push this ship, this gigantic ship of the DOE forward. And it's not an easy task and it has huge implications because it's going to affect 1.1 million students, millions of citizens in the city. So this is great. This is happening. I'm, I already made a couple of decisions about how I'm going to focus my career more on this topic. I'm going to lend more of my uh, creative energy and leadership capacity to really advance this. And I'm happy that you, you mentioned my parental status, as <laughs> we call it in sociology. I'm a father to Barak, mm -hmm. who is a three and a half year old. My husband and I are constantly thinking and talking about the world we are living to Barak and his generation. I am worried, and, and I, I believe my husband as well, about the moment we are going to have the talk about this. You know, parents have different talks with kids, depends on their identities. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. our, our generation, we need to have this talk about our responsibility and what, we, what we've done and what we could have done. But now he's only three and a half. So there is no reason, of course, to bring it to his attention yet. And what we are doing is we are focusing on modeling responsible behavior in terms of consumption, toys, um, and other things that he wants or say that he needs. Mm -hmm. And we are really working on nurturing this uh, 
responsibility to nature. So we take a lot, we spend a lot of time in the park. And from very young age, we spend time cleaning the park, taking care of the park. So when we see some bottles thrown up, not in the recycling bin or not in the garbage bin, we take care of it. And he learned it from very, very young age. I know it sounds small and it's not going to solve the climate, but I think this is how you start. Yeah, I can see that. And I'm curious just to like follow up on something that you mentioned earlier too about both how you have the worry on one side and the optimism on the other. Do you feel like your main way to keep your optimism alive is is by looking at the engagement that's happening and the awareness and letting that fuel you? Is that what is that what keeps your buoyancy in place? Most people tell me that the main thing that keep them going is hope or feeling that they have hope and a lot of it, okay? Um, and it's this kind of optimism that people that work uh, in this area, and not only in this area, also in the area of gun violence and human rights violation, etc. People that work in this area has to bring with them some optimism that the system can change. Otherwise, why are we documenting the system? Why are we exploring what is here if we don't envision some kind of a brighter future that is possible? So other people tell me that uh, they try to focus on the progress that we've made. And that's really important. So if you look at 2022, the situation looks horrible. But if you look at 2022 compared to, I don't know, 1992, when the first discussion about the international convention around climate change and climate change education really emerged, we've done a lot. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's not enough, right? I'm not saying we can all rest. Right. But um, for me, looking at the broad perspective, historically speaking, and looking at, for example, how much progress we made around renewable energy. Mm. We now have the technology to produce energy from sunlight, wind, rain, tides, waves, and even geothermal heat. Wow. So the solution is there. The technology is there. We've developed it. We as mm -hmm. a collective, we. Now it's about really putting it into action. And we see, we see that there is a boom in the renewable energy sector. Mm -hmm. And there are projections that in um, a decade or two, uh, renewable energy will be the main source of energy. Okay, so, so focusing on the progress is really important. I spend time in parks, mm -hmm. reconnecting with trees. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying, everybody, let's go hug a trees and that will make us feel better. No, just being in nature, looking at the diversity of flowers, recognizing, that's the thing that really gets me, recognizing the power that little seeds have in them to grow solar panels. Basically, leaves are solar panels. Mm -hmm. They translate light from uh, energy from the sun, from light, into molecules that can do magic. Or they can develop the most sophisticated plumbing systems, roots, <sighs> branches, etc. This is amazing. Mm. So at home, what I like to do, that's a tip for everybody. When you finish eating your pepper, your bell pepper, or your a tomato, put some seeds in the ground and just watch it grow. 
I'm amazed by that every morning. And we have a ritual with Barak. We go to the plant and we see how many new peppers we have, how many new flowers we have, how many new leaves we have. Um, I know it sounds a little bit silly or too simple, but I find it inspiring to see that nature has so much power. But um, let's stay on this topic for one more minute. Um, as you know, I'm also a social scientist. So when I understood that emotions play a role in um, how people come to engage in climate change, and I'm not saying I was the first one to do this kind of work. Other people mentioned that em emotions and anxiety is important. But when I realized that this is affecting me and others in my networks, I became interested in this topic as a scholar and started asking people about what kind of emotions the term climate change bring to their mind. Why don't we play a little game here? Jen, if you want to go first and share with us, I'm, I'm giving you the term climate change. Give us, I don't know, three to five words that come to mind. Yeah, probably like fear, powerlessness. Sometimes I feel a sense of culpability or guilt, things like that. Okay. Joe, how about you? Yeah, I mean, pretty similar. I feel overwhelmed. I feel anger, I think. Um, I feel frustration. Uh, I feel a sense of kind of um, almost like a, a stuck feeling. So what you're describing is very similar to what I found when I interviewed educators in New York City. I asked them a very similar question. What kind of emotions come to mind when you think about climate change? And most of them said or used negative terms like, I felt angry, I felt worried, I feel um, hopeless or ashamed. Very similar to what you guys said. But then we repeated the same kind of uh, exercise with kids, youth climate activists, when we saw them uh, downtown uh, in Manhattan protesting in uh, September 2021. And we found very similar that they're using these negative terms, but they also use positive terms. Mm -hmm. For example, they talk about hope and determination and feeling this sense of hopefulness and resilience and curiosity. They knew how to balance um, two sets of emotions, which is super interesting. And when we mapped it out in a visual uh, software, we found that the positive terms were re really central. If you think about the network of emotions, mm. the, po the positive terms were uh, at the center, at the core of this network, almost like holding together all the fear and anxiety around them. Mm. For me, this is a clear, uh, quick tip for teachers that want to do work with kids and really develop this sense of citizenship and activism. If we want to create citizens that go and protest and, and fight for this, we have to have a balance of emotions. They can't come only upset and knowledgeable. They have to have also hope and sense of, sense of optimism. Mm. And you can do it by looking at solutions, progress, or all the other techniques that we talked earlier. Yeah, I really appreciate that point. <laughs> and I also, you know, I have felt that sense of kind of anger and hopelessness, as we said at the top with this issue, it feels so overwhelming. 
Um, and one of the things that I'm really frustrated with is my own education around environment and sustainability issues and the way I feel like, you know, when I was young, everything was sort of channeled into these individual choice, individual responsibility types of solutions to this huge systemic problem. You know, and the older I get, the more I think, you know, this is an a political organizing problem. It's not something, not to say that we shouldn't recycle. Of course we should do what we can, right? But, um, you know, recycling is, it, my individual recycling choices are not going to solve this scale of a problem. And really we need to get together um, politically to make it happen. And what, if we're able to get some of that optimism, how should we channel it? What sort of steps should we take to both hold on to it and build on it, but also channel it in a way that's really going to be most impactful and most responsive to the scale of what we're actually talking about here. Once again, you're asking me big questions with multiple sub-questions. Let me, <laughs> I'm let sorry, me, that's a bad habit. No, of no, no, this is wonderful. <laughs> this is wonderful. So um, let, let's, let's take it uh, step by step. First of all, you are right that for years, environmental education or sustainability education really focused on the pro-environmental behaviors that individuals can take. Mm -hmm. Reuse, recycling, reduce consumption. But that's not enough. I think the scale of this crisis requires us to ask fundamental questions about everything we do. Mm -hmm. So in my work, as you mentioned, working with the DOE in, in New York City, working with colleagues in Israel, working with colleagues uh, now through the OECD, we're really trying to look at the structural barriers that prevent schools from maximizing their potential in being part of the solution for the climate crisis. One of the things that I believe prevents schools from doing a good job on that is the obsession with assessment and accountability. Hmm. A topic that on surface level, you won't connect to the climate, but it is connected to the, to the climate in many ways. Mm. I'll give you at least two. Mm. One, when we focus, when the discourse is focusing on assessment and achievement, achievement and economic growth and all of that, we are having a discourse that goes against climate. Because we know that we can continue with the current economic structure of growth if we want to sustain the planet. Okay? Mm -hmm. I know my friends in economics will challenge me on that, and it's fine. We can have a debate. But the research I'm reading from economists and non-economists shows that we can continue with growth business as usual and still claim that we are protecting the planet. It's just impossible. So you're saying that we need to care about something else more besides yeah. constant achievement, growth, productivity, yeah. and for, wealth. Yeah, for, for, for example. But... This is the meta level. And then at the practice level, at the school level, we know from experiments we did with teachers that the moment you mentioned accountability, achievement, test score, standardized testing, their motivation to engage with climate topics goes down. Why? Because they don't see it as the core of the curriculum anymore. Mm. So going back to your question, Joe, if we really want to take this seriously in education, we need to ask fundamental questions about everything we do. Hmm. So a student cannot escape the topic anymore, 
okay? Or there are no practices that don't align with this mission of climate. I'll give you an example. I would like every colleague at the college and every colleague at the ARA, the American Educational Research Association, to think about how climate affects their work. I want someone in the um, curriculum and teaching space to think about how it's going to affect their work. I want people in teacher education to think how it's going to affect their work. In, and I want people in policy and politics, leadership, administration, school psychology and counseling, higher education, sociology of education, anthropologists of education. Everybody has to take a pause and to think how much climate or the status of the planet is affecting the subject that I'm studying, humans and non-humans, mm-hmm. organizations and individuals. And unless we do that, then we are just doing performative work around uh, recycling and reusing and reducing consumption. So you're talking about like slowing down to really like ask what the impact is so that this reality, both the problem or any possibilities can infuse everything we're doing. And to say, if we look at curriculum, what purpose is it serving? Every piece in it. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yeah. And I want, I'm not a curriculum person, Mm -hmm. so I can't help people in doing the work, but I'm always a partner to ask questions. Mm -hmm. Right? So the curriculum is like, what kind of assumptions this curriculum is promoting? Or what kind of assumptions inform this curriculum? Or what are the intended and unintended consequences of such a curriculum? Okay? I don't want... I, it's not that I'm interested that environmental education will be now everywhere um, 24-7, blah, blah, blah. No. We need to do the other thing also. We need to think about what current curriculum, what kind of environmental education current curriculum is giving kids? Meaning, what are they learning about the relationship to the planet or to animals? Okay? Even if it's not labeled as environmental education, it is doing environmental education. That's my point. Whether we call it that or not. Or not. Whether we're being aware about it or not. Yeah. We're still like communicating some kind of value system. Yeah. And I think that's that's the bigger task. So um, I don't want kids to experience climate change education only through the sciences. We talked about it earlier. It needs to be throughout the curriculum in a very sophisticated, engaging, unthreatening way. We need to think about age, when we are introducing different concepts. We need to focus on solutions, not only the problems. And I have many ideas on how to do that. So if if we want, we can talk about it more. Education aside, we've talked about that some, but also just as like, as parents, as adults who are just listening to the news, do you have any like practical tips for us about how to both stay informed and stay engaged and not do this thing that I sometimes do where I hear the bad news and I'm like, I need to go lay down <laughs> <laughs> and pull a blanket over my head. I can tell you it's not a good strategy though, to lay down, mm-hmm. take a break from all of that, recharge and come back. Mm-hmm. I, I can't tell you that it's a bad thing to do. I can't tell you even that I'm not doing that. I am. I'm not necessarily just lying down. I'm watching bad television. 
<laughs> okay, I'm glad I'm not <laughs> yeah, the only yeah, one yeah, saying yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> we are not going to talk about what kind of television no. I'm watching these days. That's for another <laughs> podcast. Um, but um, working with youth uh, as part of our center, we have an uh, initiative called Youth at the Center. And what we wanted to do is to really engage youth and to support them. And we decided, although it costed us a lot of money to spend the full semester, rather than immediately operate, like offering a program, which is people in education are really good in developing immediately a workshop, set of events, speakers, and we just listened mm. for a full semester to what kids want from an Ivy League institution like us, a research one graduate school of education. And we learned that they want a space where they can ask questions. They want a space where adults would listen and sometimes provide advice. Sometimes they want us to amplify their voice. Um, and I found that request to be very, very important. So what we did is we collected from them concerns about uh, what's happening or not in schools. And we, without names or without names of schools, we just took the quotes and brought it to the Department of Education in different forms to make sure that people are hearing what these kids have to say. Um, we did a lot of art projects with them, collecting stories about climate stories that they have or sustainability projects that they're doing in school. And we are, we are putting them all on a website so other schools can be inspired by what these kids are doing and maybe offering it to their kids as well. And we are entering our third year with a lot of energy and commitment. You need to see my students. My students are pumped about this. They are like, we want to volunteer. You don't have to pay us. We want to do more and more work around this. It's amazing. It's really, really inspiring to see our students at TC getting into this. When I'm, you know, my friends that have teenager kids um, always tell me, oh, my kid is interested in this. Why don't you speak with them about that? Hmm. And I'm always telling my friends that I'm more than happy to listen. I don't want to do the talking. Kids that are concerned about that and thinking about this topic, sometimes just want someone adult to recognize that, yes, this is an issue. They want to hear a little bit what we are doing, what is possible to do. But most of the time, they just want us to listen. So that's what I'm doing as a, as a friend of friends that have teenagers. And again, I, I, I said it earlier, I am worried about the moment that my son will ask me questions about this. But it's a good reminder, I think, to make space for people's feelings and their experience. And I feel like the things I feel most concerned or afraid of, I think the thing that feels most comforting is when someone else is willing just to sit beside me in my feelings mm -hmm. and in my experiences. Without judgments. Without judgments. So I, I just want to say one more thing, that in addition to all of the techniques and tips I shared with you so far, I also talk about my climate-related feelings and anxiety. You know, when, when work overwhelms me, I speak with my family, I speak with my friends. And many times I also speak with a professional mental health uh, psychologist or counselor. Um, I find speaking with it and airing my emotions 
um, to be a very, very helpful way to really navigate what I'm feeling at the moment and also to regenerate new energy so I can continue the work the day after. That's really important. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Like something I'm going to come back to that you said and remember a lot um, is this thing you mentioned about the the young climate activists who can hold both the feelings, that can hold the concern alongside the determination and the optimism. And um, I'm going to return to that a lot myself. How about you, Joe? What do you feel like? Yeah, I mean, one of my big takeaways from this, oh, weirdly, it's maybe not weirdly, but um, it kind of gives me hope what you said about asking everyone to reflect no matter what their role is on how climate change and sustainability is related to their work. You know, when I think about that for myself, that kind of gives me hope because you're, you're opening up sort of like the first step. <laughs> the first step is reflecting on, on how I already intersect with this. And that's in a way, like if you think of it sort of disembodied, it's more overwhelming. And even though it's still a big issue, if I think about, you know, where do I fit? that gives me kind of a place to stand to take a next step from. So I really appreciated that, that um, sort of step in your process. And I really hope that listeners um, take this, don't focus too much on the beginning of the conversation about the, the problems, take the solutions that we talked about, the visions that we discussed here today, and always um, feel free to contact us at the center. We are always happy to hear from people that listen to different podcasts or resources that we put online and follow mm -hmm. us on Twitter. We tweet <laughs> a lot. Nice. Of course. Well, Oren, thanks so much for joining us. This really felt like, I don't know, I just feel very moved by this conversation. And I appreciate you taking the time and like bringing so much of both your thoughtfulness, but also your heart to the conversation. Yeah. Thanks so much. We just, I feel, I really do feel like we achieved kind of like feeling like we're in a place where we can uh, take, take a next step on this instead of just feeling overwhelmed. So thank you for that. And thanks for taking the time to be with us. Sure. Thank you so much for everything you're doing and for helping us to advance this work. Thanks for listening. You can find the Center for Sustainable Futures website that Oren mentioned at tc.edu sustainability. And we'll also include a link in the show notes to the episode. Follow House School wherever you podcast and leave a rating and review to support the show. In next week's episode on the youth mental health crisis, we're joined by Cindy Huang, a psychologist and researcher who shares about mental health challenges hitting home during COVID-19. As a psychologist, I'm self-aware and, you know, can deal with mental health issues when they hit. And then I think as a parent of three children during the pandemic, you know, one of whom was like just an infant still when the pandemic hit, it was just sort of like everything colliding and making me fully realize, wait, this is what I researched and now I'm living this. Like I'm, I'm living and experiencing the stress and the the like risk factors that you know that I talk about. House School is created, hosted, and produced by myself, Jen Lee, and Jorina Ferry, with audio production and original music by Billy Collins. 
House School is a production of the Digital Futures Institute at Teachers College, Columbia University. You can follow the Digital Futures Institute on Instagram or Twitter at TC Digital Future. More soon.